The human male never seems to progress past adolescence. To the Batmobile. Goodly, goodly. Let's go. Danger. Let's go. Hey, horse. Take for take. You wouldn't like me when I'm wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. Hello, darling. Welcome. Oh, God. Is that loud? It was something. You were really reaching for it there. <laughs> Just keep that in. Reach down deep into your... Welcome <laughs> to the comic trope. Is that your Blake impersonation? And, no, well, no, but every week it gets slightly higher, I feel like. Uh, like, just just barely. So right, right. at some point it's, welcome to the comic trope. And it, on a long, in, the, in the popsicle zone. <laughs> on, a, on a long enough timeline, only dogs will hear the yeah. intro to comic trope. <laughs> right, here we go. Here we go. Uh, Welcome. Oh, I can't do it. Welcome to the comic trope. We're in a small room. Walls are keeping us in, but then they're broken down with baskets of tea and other English things. I have an English person with me right now. Amos, how are you? Hello. There's no Englishman named Amos. <laughs> what do you want your name to be for this? Interview? Cyril. I Nigel. <laughs> Basil. Basil. <laughs> Hello, I have Cyril to the right of me. English Dave to the left. Why do you sound like a mouse? I and Sequoia. All right, so here the comic show. <laughs> not English Sequoia. My last name is Winston. Though. That is true. Oh, yeah, that's, I could have just got Sequoia Winston Churchill. My family, at least at one time, belonged to an English family. <laughs> Oh, the comic trope is a show about comic books. Today, I have Smiling Dave with me, Amos, and Encyclopedia Black himself, Sequoia Winston, to talk about V for Vendetta, both the movie and the comic book by Alan Moore. But before we get into that stuff, let's do an icebreaker. So here's my icebreaker for you guys. Don't worry, it's nothing silly like doing V-words. I would never do that to you guys. Instead, Thank I have God, a, Blake. That would make you a total hack. I know. We would just say vagina a lot. Yeah, and we're more grown up than that, so I know that we definitely didn't do that and didn't delete it in the recording. <laughs> Could V for Vendetta live in the DC universe? I think that truly depends on um, whether how bad the EU gets. So if DC continues to lose money on the EU, which is not even really true, they do make money on it. Oh, I thought you meant the European Union for a second. I was nope. really confused. No, the most important <laughs> thing to do with the European Union is just to back out of it. Um, so <laughs> that is not the opinion of the contract. <laughs> I don't think it could, honestly. Uh, plus, I mean, I guess it's kind of funny, like looking back at all the other stuff that Alan Moore's done for DC and how they've, like, you know, like uh, what was it though? What was the Watchmen follow-up they did? The uh, not Beyond Watchmen or After Watchmen, whatever the hell it was called. After Watch was yeah, I can't that. Rem- yeah, I can't remember yeah. what it was. But you know, like V for Vendetta has pretty much remain unscathed. Uh, and I think it's one of those Alan Moore books that like a lot of people tend to forget about. They don't always think about, say, compared to Watchmen or even From, um, hell. from hell or League of, of Extraordinary Gentlemen or any of his Swamp Thing work. Like, you know, sometimes I think V for Vendetta gets lost in the cracks sometimes. So I, I don't know. And I, I don't see it fitting into the larger DC universe. Yeah, my answer is I hope not. Like, I don't want to see that. The, the one thing that's been great about this book is how wonderfully separate it is. Yeah. So so that said, um, over under on the number of years it'll take DC to cram it into their mainline continuity. <laughs> I think that if, this, if it goes really well with the Watchmen, 
that that this will that will set precedent. I think there's probably other properties they touch long before then they long before they would touch V for Vendetta, and not necessarily just Alan Moore's. I mean, they've got a host of things to work with. Um, I mean, they could start eyeing Vertigo stuff, and they could decide that it's time for Spider Jerusalem to join. You know. Ugh. The League of Tomorrow, or something like that. Um, I could see American Vampire totally living in the DC universe and not be weird. Well, I mean, I think the thing is with you know DC bringing in stuff like you know John Constantine because that's that's the big outlier. John Constantine. Well, you you know, I mean, the thing is, a lot of people have kind of commented on them bringing in John Constantine, Zatanna, Swamp Thing back in Preacher. The main, well, into the main DCU, right, yeah. and <clears throat> the thing is, those characters belong there at one point because. You know, Alan Moore and, you know, who other writers, you know, were putting those characters in books and other DC characters as well, long before there was ever such a thing as the Vertigo label. Right. But once that came up, they were like, well, we kind of need a way to separate our more mature reader stuff from our mainline, you know, properties. But, you know, Alan Moore doesn't write for them anymore. And part of it is, you know, DC's like, hey, we got to bring attention to everything that we own. We can't really ghettoize it anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, just kind of keeping it separated. So, I mean, you know, there was this effort. I mean, because, hell, even Neil Gaiman's Sandman, that's an adaptation of a pre-existing right. DC character. But, I mean, V, oh, hell, let me go back to Watchmen. Watchmen, I mean, it was based on the Charlton characters that DC purchased, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. So, you know, like Captain Adam, Blue Beetle, all those guys, like they didn't create them originally. They belong, they absorbed that company and took those characters with them. V, on the other hand, it was a project, you know, that was being worked on in the UK. We'll get into that, I guess, later. Sure. And, and DC at some point, you know, mm-hmm. D, Alan Moore was working for him. So they're like, hey, bring this over here and we'll, we'll complete the project for you. You know, so I, 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 yeah, I don't see them doing it. I don't think it would work. It's like I regard it like the crow. It's a one and done. There's nothing else to say after it, right? Are you sure? Because there's four or five crow sequels that are all worth watching. Yeah, but not, but not for that reason. I can say this is why Sequoia has been missed. Well, well, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I mean, I guess you know, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I mean, you know, the end of V for Vendetta is kind of kind of open-ended there's still work to be done you know at the end of that book but i think that's a good segue this next segment is encyclopedia black takes you to school and uh, hop aboard the school train oh lord <laughs> school train v the vendetta v of vendetta v vendetta vava vivada volva Oh, God. You know, the easiest way to clean your palate of the sounds is to put some really hard K sounds in it. So just try it. Kurt Russell's penis. Just get the V out of your mouth. (laughs) Kurt's cock, if you will. (laughs) Welcome to a new segment we're calling Kurt's Cock. It's where Blake shakes his head disapprovingly while Dave and I laugh. Soon... We won't go through this anymore. After the Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I will not allow talk of Kurt Russell's penis. <laughs> nope. You're going to have to at least pick someone else's penis. To talk what about. if it's in anticipation for Guardians of the Galaxy 3? That's true. No. Volume 3 will happen. What is the name? Guardians of the Galaxy 3, Kurt Russell's penis. Yeah. That's the work if they were smart right? about things, that's what they do. V for Vendetta. Sequoia, it's so nice to have you back on the comic show. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here amongst you guys. I miss it. Um, part of the reason why I recommended this book for us to read was I remember back when we were doing Tokyo Ghost and somewhere in the text uh, exchange, somebody had said something about 
Trump's America or, you know, stuff with the election and and whatnot. And I remember thinking to myself, if, if you guys think that this is, you know, this book is really relevant to what's going on right now, and then not just in the U.S., but also in the EU and uh, Britain and such, I was like, you know, we seriously need to sit down and read V for Vendetta because I don't I can't think of a more prescient uh, story than that. So um, I guess we've had some time and, you know, the fortunate thing along with reading the book is Netflix recently added it to their streaming service. Mm-hmm. And I recommended everybody watch the movie as well, because I feel like you can't really talk about the book these days without mentioning the movie. <clears throat> And, you know, a lot of people have seen the movie and they think they know the story. But the thing is, the movie is not the book, which is the case a lot of times with uh, Alan Moore's work. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing about V for Vendetta, uh, originally he, Alan Moore and David Lloyd published it early 80s, roughly around 1982 for Warrior magazine in the UK. And uh, I think at that time it was printed in black and white. And... um, I think it ran from like 82 to either 83 or 85. I know that's a big gap, but uh, Warrior Magazine, which also published uh, Miracle Man, mm-hmm. or as it's called over there, Marvel Man, went <laughs> under and they didn't have a home for the story. Flash forward years later, you know, Alan Moore's over at DC Comics, um, you know, doing Swamp Thing and so forth. And uh, I guess they approached him about bringing that story about 88, 89 DC said, Hey, why don't you bring this over? And this is after Watchmen and such, and we'll finish, we'll finish publishing this story. So it came out, it ran under DC comics from about 88 to 89. Uh, I think it was like a, I can't remember if it was a 10 or 12 issue maxi series right. and such, but it was part of the vertigo line. And, uh, you know, I, I recommend it cause I, I think it's one of Alan Moore's kind of, it's a highly regarded story, but I think a lot of people forget about it. It always kind of, kind of gets lost behind a uh, watchman. You know, that's the one people always think about. <clears throat> so, or league or league league of extraordinary gentlemen and stuff. And it was, but it was entirely a, a original creation from, uh, Alan Moore and David Lloyd. Um, he said, you know, the inspiration for his work was Margaret Thatcher. Well, <clears throat> that was what was going on in the UK at the time, right. you know, dealing with the, uh, rise of the conservative party, uh, through Margaret, Margaret Thatcher and, you know, the rise of nationalism and basically just the whole uh, could a uh, new form of fascism yeah, you had, you had come the, about. Yeah, the skinheads who pledged allegiance to King George and the King George flag, right? Well, not not to King George, but the, the ideal of, of that whole thing. And so they weren't, you know, rep, you know, they weren't looking to the Union Jack, right? They were looking to King George's flag. Uh, you had uh, the conflict at the time in the uh, Falkland Islands, mm-hmm. which was you know killing a lot of you know young British men uh, that were enlisted in the military, and a lot of people saw it as absolutely pointless. So there was a lot of um, there was, was a very different political backdrop. Well, maybe not from today, uh, but definitely a very different political backdrop than what many people who have read the story are used to or, or would would recognize in the the early eighties in, in the UK. I mean, oh, sorry. Well, I also read um, in an interview he. Um, listed off all of the all of the works that he based this off of. Yes. And the one that really caught my eye, other than the obvious like Fahrenheit 451, the one that really caught my eye was World War II British um, <clears throat> documentaries. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And you could, I really see that in the paneling and in the art as well. Like that, the choice of having like a grainy reel-to-reel kind of feel when you're reading through it 
Oh, oh yeah. Like, I mean, as lovely on one hand, as lovely as, as lovely as the artwork is, it's also very drab and very washed out, and it totally gets the the mood and and the feel of uh, you know encapsulates how you're supposed to be feeling when you when you read this story. I mean, I remember the first time I read it was in my mid late teens, and um, the thing that struck me was it reminded me a lot of watching you know something from the BBC during the late seventies or early eighties, like you know old episodes of faulty tower or are you being served where, you know, the lighting's really warm, but very dim and everything just has this grainy shot in video look to it. And, you know, like watching old BBC newscasts as a kid, just everything just looks so drab and unappealing. All creatures and, great and small. Yes. That, that type stuff. <laughs> and it really helps. So it's, it's, it's not a lot of the, you know, heavy art flourishes that you get say with something like Watchmen, which is, God, just neon, yeah. but that's trying to take the colors. It's an interpretation of, you know, the four color spread that you see in a lot of, you know, comic books from the Silver Age and stuff. It was totally going in the opposite direction of that, you know, but it's still beautiful, especially if you ever get to see some of the original Warrior stuff in black and white. I mean, David Lloyd's artwork is fantastic. Reminds me a lot of uh, David Mazzuccelli's stuff mm-hmm. from, uh, uh, well, you know, his Batman Year One stuff before he got colored. So where's the best place to start when talking about this book? The beginning. (laughs) Well, I know we said we were going to talk about the book, and you know I felt like you can't really talk about the book without mentioning the movie. But a couple of interesting things I was looking up because, you know, the thing is, like I said, everyone knows the movie, and as a result, you know, one big thing is if you're not familiar with V for Vendetta, you've seen its influence. Uh, If you're familiar with the uh, the uh, hacker group Anonymous. And the mask they wear, a lot of people don't know the origin of that. That is a uh, replica. A lot of uh, their members or supporters wear are a, you know, Guy Fawkes mask, you know, made for the movie. DC, I think, uh, during one of their reprints of the V for Vendetta graphic novel, they started packaging the book with a replica mask. Mm -hmm. And now you can just buy the mask in and of itself uh, without the book. But I looked it up and... um, the funny thing is, you know, because that mask is used by a lot of people who are kind of anti-corporation, anti-big pharma, big tech, whoever, you know, this there's this this uh, this this ideology that's been attached to that image. But the irony is that Time Warner owns that lock and stock and they make a <laughs> shit ton of money off that mask. I was reading that it was probably one of Amazon.com's most popular masks. They sell somewhere in the hundreds of thousands of it a year and it actually outsells Darth Vader and Batman, if you can believe that. Time Warner Cable. <laughs> Time Warner Cable. Owns the replica of the, that trademark, yes. Well well not not necessarily cable, but just Time Warner. Well yeah Time Warner is in yeah, yeah. the corporation, yeah. Potato potato. It's also always been kind of ironic that, you know, these groups that associate at least a little bit with anarchism or some sort of non-collectivist ideologies are all about this symbol, which is associated with Guy Fawkes, who was trying to replace a an autocratic English monarchy with an even more autocratic Catholic monarchy. Mm-hmm. It's not like he was a freedom fighter. No, right. no, no. I think a lot of that gets kind of <clears throat> kind of lost in, in the uh, in the message. Because the funny thing is, if you read the book, one contrast is, you know, the movie opens with a um, 
with a flashback to Guy Fawkes being caught trying to blow up Parliament. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, was it Par- House of Lords uh, at that time? But trying to blow that up, and there's this you know narration by Natalie Portman, and there's this whole thing about fighting for freedom and what one believes in, which Guy Fawkes was trying to do. But at the same time, it's like you know you're really dumbing down mm-hmm. what that guy was all about, and trying to sell it as something that it really isn't. Funny thing is in the movie, you see him being hung. That was his form of execution, which he was to be hung originally, but apparently he fucking fell off the scaffolding and broke his neck. So he never, (laughs) every one of the crowd just laughs. (laughs) It's the worst. And and, and that's the thing. Like a lot of people, they don't know about like the tradition of, um, Guy Fawkes night or, uh, you know, the gunpowder uh, treason, that, that whole celebration every November 5th that they hold in the UK, how that's sort of mocking the man and, and what he stood for in his, you know, inept attempt to try and blow up and assassinate uh, King. Was it, uh, oh, Lord, was, it wasn't King Lord. I'm trying to know which King it was. Not George. Uh, Henry. No, it wasn't Henry. I know. Ah, fuck it. But anyway. So what you're telling me is that V for Vendetta is not historically accurate. <laughs> The book doesn't even barely mentions Guy Fawkes. I mean, you know, you, it, it doesn't even get into that aspect. I mean, you, you are made aware that's who the image, you know, V has uh, taken on. You, you're known, you're let known that's who it is, but, I mean, they don't even get into that. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's more or less just like, hey, you remember this guy? I'm using his visage. He tried to blow up, you know. A mem- uh, you know, a building of government once. Yeah, and that's that's basically as deep as it runs. Yeah, yeah. It's I've deeper always, in the movie for whatever reason. But well, I think just because you know, uh, British readers of that comic would have been more familiar with the the holiday or the whatever yeah. the tradition, and you know, the the movie definitely makes uh, a strong attempt to gear this toward American audiences. You know, you, you see the description of Guy Fox, and then you see Prothero talking to the audience. It's like the first, uh, or I guess it's the second scene, and he's talking about what happened to America. It's like the first thing is they establish what happened to America. Now let's move to England. Yeah, and, and the movie's very, very much Americanized. It tries yeah. to take that story and subvert it to something, and the book is very much about the time it was published in and the location. Um, if <clears throat> funny enough, I looked up a quote and what Alan Moore had to say about the movie. He said it was a Bush era parable. Uh, it was a thwarted, frustrated, largely impotent American liberal fantasy. And the book itself was about fascism, anarchy, and England. So he felt like it was just total. It, if the Wachowskis wanted to make a story talking about. You know, at that time, the Bush administration, a lot of people's fears uh, about the Patriot Act and also, you know, a lot of the trauma that people that was kind of hanging over the United States post September 11th. They really the Wachowski should have just created their own American fantasy or parable. Use some other story instead of trying to take this very English story and subverting it to their own means. But I think if the movie didn't exist, I don't know if many people would have read the book. So that's sort of the ironic thing about it. You know, you're Alan Moore, and you keep making all this money because people keep buying the book versions of shit they've seen in the theaters. I mean, at some point... <laughs> well, he's, he's rejected it all. I mean, he... Does he, he really not take on any financial gain from that? Nope. He's no, a better man than I am. He's, he gave it all to David Lloyd and said, you know, I want nothing to do with it. And Damn, man, that's... I don't, know, I don't know whether to be, like, like admiring of that or to shake my head and be like, yeah. Well, he's a man of principle. I mean, I, I mean, suppose. You know, I don't always agree with him, but... 
He's yeah. certainly damn. I don't think I even I even knew that. Yeah, yeah. Same thing with Watchmen. I think he kind of had enough of it after From Hell and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He's just like fuck this shit, fuck Hollywood. You're not doing any of my stuff right. So you know. So before we jump into specifically the V for Vendetta and start, you know, kind of you know parsing through the actual story itself, um, what would you say is the least awful Alan Moore graphic novel to movie translation? Least awful. Because none of them are good. Some of them are probably serviceable. Yeah, and I mean, the funny thing is having just read the book and then immediately watching the, watching the movie, I, I remember really liking the movie at the time, but I think seeing it this time around, it, it's not as strong. I, sure. I think uh, as much as I like Natalie Portman, I think she was kind of a weak link. You know, should have just got a British actress to do an actual British accent. Right. Uh, I think the straw point of the movie is uh, I love Stephen Fry. He was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, John Hurt. That was a nice little bit of irony right. having him in there. God rest your soul. <laughs> it's talking about being prescient. Uh, yeah. And and um, fucking uh, Hugo Weaving, man. I mean, he he sold that. I right. mean, that was him in the mask doing. I mean, I mean, short of the stunts. I mean, you know, he sold that so much of that with body language. Right. So props he to had to overdub everything. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure he did after the fact. I mean, they had to do an AR. But, uh, but that, was, that was actually him. The, uh, the problem I had with the movie in comparison to the book was the introduction of uh, V and being in love with Evie. Yeah. I think that that lessened the transformation of Evie from a mm-hmm. uh, broken young girl to strong independent woman. It it did not come across like that in the movie whereas in the book she kind of went on a Tyler Durden if you will, you know. Mm-hmm. She I mean going from a 16-year-old who's about to uh prostitute herself to the next mask the next v for vendetta yeah um i think that that's really what crippled the movie for me everything else was fine Mm. i mean it wasn't great um but i thought it was a good enough movie but the love thing is what really kind of makes me think that it's on the lower end of the spectrum instead of it being like a fun quote superhero movie unquote if you will and uh, and and that's the thing i mean you know the movie hits most of the major story beats of the of the book uh, but I mean, that book, I mean, really unfolds at a very slow pace and, and takes its time. Whereas the movie, like, you know, you said before, it's very Americanized. So, mm-hmm. I mean, people are very comfortable with that whole mm-hmm. idea of the hero having his love interest and such. And V and Evie have in the book have pretty much a very sexless relationship because I mean, that's part of V's character, which uh, is good. Cause she's a child <laughs> the whole time. I was like, this is a. This is a 16, 17-year-old, and that the character Gordon, who she does have the romantic relationship with, I'm like, how old is this guy? I mean, I thought that was kind of sketchy and maybe gross. but well, uh, you know, maybe sketchy and gross, but, you know, that's the, the age of consent in South Carolina is 14, so. <laughs> anyway, the difference between illegal and gross are, you know. Yeah, separate. that's a different conversation. But but I realize I didn't answer your question about what do I think is a better, a right? The least Alan offensive Moore. Alan Moore film adaptation. You know, I mean, I think they're fine films in and of themselves. But I mean, don't ever compare them to the book. I mean, I like From Hell. Yeah, that's a 
I shouldn't say a fun movie, but it's definitely not. I mean, that totally means when you say fun. All. I often think hell. It's a fun <laughs> Jack place. the Ripper. Yeah, I mean, you totally it totally mm. misses all the nuance and finer details of the uh, of the book. But you know, for what it is, it's fine. The Hughes Bros did a pretty good job. Fuck League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. That's a piece. Of play <laughs> yeah, they're you, rebooting that apparently. You know what's a funny? Um, I think my favorite difference between the the movie and the book just because it was made it sort of hilarious was that final showdown with uh, Creedy and all his men. It was just like, how much more American action movie can they make this where you see like it goes into bullet time and you can see the, like a trail uh, behind um, the daggers, the daggers as sailing through the air. Yeah. I mean, it was the Wachowskis who produced it. And right. the guy, the director uh, was James McTeague was the their co- uh, co-director on the matrix. Yeah. So, I mean, there was going to be a lot of that. I mean, I think that was just something they owed. And he also did Warner uh, brothers at the time. He did Ninja assassin too. Didn't he? <clears throat> yes. I think he, he Which, was, you know, but I'm trying to think, what, what other Alan Moore adaptations are there? I mean, there's, there's V there's Watchmen. I, I do like Watchmen a lot. Yeah. Um, it's got its flaws. Zack Snyder being Zack Snyder. Absolutely. Uh, what? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Hellblazer, I think, was, I don't even think that was an, exactly an adaptation of Alan Moore. So I thought it that wasn't. Was, it was just the Garth Ennis. Yeah, the Garth right? Ennis stuff. If I, yeah. yeah. I, I'd say probably, and then I guess Swamp technically thing. Swamp Thing, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say. I mean, if you, if you want to get, uh, I think the most enjoyable for me would be Watchmen. Yeah. Not because it's a direct corollary to the book itself, but because it just is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of works. Yeah. For the most part. Well, what I don't want to do is go too long. I mean, for, oh, when talking about this comic, this graphic novel, what I don't want to do is give a, a page by page. No, no. Uh, what a good way to go through this is to talk about the characters in what we liked and disliked about them. Is that a good way to kind of talk about the book? Or? Well, let's, I think I think a good place to start would be just to talk about what's happening in England at the time of the book. Yeah, well, that's something definitely the book succeeds at that the movie doesn't is, you know, it does a better job of building the world and explaining why this situation exists inside mm. the UK. And it doesn't go into a lot of detail about everywhere else in the world. I mean, it gives you just enough. But basically, the reason why this, you know, fascist totalitarian government was able to rise was, you know, there was a bit of that sentiment existing already, but the things that kind of pushed it over the edge were, you know, uh, world essentially World War Three, mm-hmm. which I'm assuming, you know, wipes out the United States. They do mention it wipes out Africa. Uh, and then, of course, the chaos that ensues afterwards, you know, leaves uh, England in such a, a weakened state that uh, I think the organization's Norse Fire, sort of a, uh, a neo-fascist uh, regime, they're able to kind of come in. To the vacuum and kind yeah, of, yeah. And, and establish <clears throat> power and, you know, kind of make people feel secure again. But, of course, you know, they use that vacuum, that 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 chaos to kind of fulfill their own agenda in terms of getting rid of undesirables, namely being, you know, homosexuals, what uh, they would consider deviants from society. Yeah, people who did not practice the Christian faith, people who were not Anglo-Saxon. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, any uh, eth- you know ethnicities. I mean, Asian, uh, Arabic, Arabic, uh, Indian. I'm sure there there was a huge. You know, I mean, at that time, you had a lot of Africans and Pakistanis mm-hmm. coming to the UK, and you know, in in real life, and there was this resentment uh, towards that. Uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, uh, was it Enoch Powell. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that he strong anti-immigration stance. And some people kind of differ uh, or argue about, you know, whether or not his intent was 
you know, fueled by racism or was he trying to be a pragmatist in terms of, you know, the UK was poor at that time. Um, How do we share so little with what, with so many essentially? Ex- exactly, if, exactly. If you were going to argue in his favor, which I don't know and, that I would, but. And a lot of people took that message and said, yeah, you know what? Uh, England for, uh, England for the English, no right. one else. And, you know, oddly enough, we're kind of seeing that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Especially, you know, this 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 week, um, you know, with everything that's going on as far as like, you know, the ban on uh, Muslim immigration and and travel. Exactly. Exactly. You know, um, what was the, the point I was going to make just now? Um, it, it's it's classically British in the sense that um, I, I love in, in British fiction whenever the world goes to shit, but Britain remains mm-hmm. because they're such a small country. Right. They don't have a lot of natural resources, and so it's always blown my mind whenever there's a uh, a film uh, that takes place wherein, well, the rest of the world has gone to shit, but jolly old England, she's still here, right? Yeah. Like with, uh, you see it a lot in, in a lot of their um, in in the work that they produce. If you if you look at literally any other country's uh, future facing fiction, Britain never never lasts. <laughs> Britain yeah. is one of the first countries to go. Um, but it's, it, I, I think that gave me a chuckle reading this now and thinking about all the stuff that's going on. It was just like Africa fell, the United States fell, uh, China fell, but England, they England made prevails. it. prevails. <laughs> With no natural resources on a shitty island in the yeah. middle of a cold ocean, they made it, guys. Yeah, that's probably one of the least realistic things is if you have this you know, global nuclear war, I don't think any society is going to be able to maintain itself well you know even alan moore i mean in the foreword to the to the trade paperback i mean he kind of you know uh gives himself a little grief because he's like you know i how much did i know about you know nuclear winter at that time to assume (laughs) that the uk would survive right (laughs) world war three i mean i think the only excuse he kind of gives himself in the book is that you know the conservative party pushed out uh uh american uh missile silos and bases and that pretty much, you know, exited them out of any kind of major nuclear uh, conflict. So right. that's why it would be safe. But still, I mean, you know, you have ocean currents and climate and climate and such. So England would be screwed. It's interesting how in the book versus the movie, it reflects what people were really worried about at the time. So, you know, in the early 80s, the height of the Cold War, uh, the the thing that ignites the whole you know everything going to shit is a nuclear war and then in the movie you get this vague notion of you know america's war so and then they show footage of the iraq war in afghanistan and that spreading to other places they give you the sense that the whole thing starts with american foreign policy just run amok and translates into this really anti-immigrant attitude uh, which is, you know, maybe more reflective of the kind of things that people worry about today, as which, opposed to like, there's no mention of nuclear weapons in the in the yeah. movie, and people don't talk about that much these days. Yeah, yeah, because in the 90s, nuclear war wasn't the worry of yeah, it wasn't imminent century, right? Right. Another very English part of this book is V's um, iambic pentameter, like. Everything that he says, did I fuck that up? Is no. that not how you say it? I thought you were laughing at me. So. No, I was thinking um, how everybody's drinking tea all the time, but they're not. <laughs> no, totally not. But just uh, the um, very Shakespearean way that he speaks, right? 
it's done very well in the book. Like if you reread it, like you can see where the rests are in, in all of V's speech. And I thought that, that that's very highbrow. And I, I really appreciated that in this book is I thought I had read this book. I definitely didn't read this book. You know how like you read stuff when you're 14 or 15 mm-hmm. and then you read it again, you know, in your thirties and you remember the book. Right. I, the opposite. I assumed I had read this book. And then when I started reading it, I was like, I don't remember any of this. And there were so many nuances of this book that I really appreciated, especially V's narrative. I thought it was just masterfully done. Yeah, that's fantastic. The thing I love that Alan Moore does a lot in his books um, is the music that he writes. Because a lot of people don't realize Alan Moore is a musician and he actually has some stuff out there. But um, uh, I want to say he was real close friends with the guys from Love and Rockets. Yeah, not so. necessarily the comics, the Hernandez brothers, but the, right. the band. Um, but yeah, he he literally, he honest to God, writes out. You know, he he composes tunes that he puts into his works, and I mean, like I think you could actually sit down and play the music and sing it all out. You know, if you go on YouTube, all of the songs that are in this uh, book. Mm-hmm people have reproduced to listen to. I was thinking about putting some in this podcast, but they're all really bad, so uh-huh. I'm not going to. But if you want to get an idea of like the type of music that is written in this book, it's very... Um, it's very... I don't want to say fan of the opera because that's not what it is. But it's, What's a cabaret? Yes, it's, it's very it's cabaret. cabaret music. It's, it, it's very sing-songy, and uh, it's interesting. It's very interesting. Well, if, if but just reading it, I thought it was pretty boring. But then listening to it, it was neat. So. Well, I mean, you know, still in the lyrics. I mean, he's still t- still telling the story in the lyrics. Agreed. Right. You know, I Makes thought it was. Me, a, uh, sorry, I keep no, that's talking fine. Over you, but I thought it was a very weird way to start the third volume, though. Mm-hmm. With that, the third volume was the volume that started off very slow to me, I guess, because it was being it, it didn't introduce new characters, but the narrative was from. Uh, Penny or what is her name? Oh, uh, uh, Derek Allman's wife. Yeah, yeah I forget Kate. her name. Rose. 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 Yeah, but it started. It was from the perspective of Rose, and that threw me for a, a spin. I was like, "Wait a minute, who is this character?" And I had to go back and like remind myself. And, and that is a hard thing about this book because I mean, there's not a lot of. You know, David David Lloyd's art isn't very typical, so a lot of times I confuse characters I don't remember. Like, have I met this person before? And you kind of have to go back and retranslate. Oh, this guy is that guy. Because just it's and this this isn't knocking his artwork, but it's so drab. And you know, most characters in the book pretty much dress the same. Right. It's a. I mean, it's a totalitarian <clears throat> society, and they're all white people. So they all just they're all just white people in the same outfit. Well, I mean, you know, no one had any really distinguish, distinguishing characteristics. I mean, I remember Mr. Finch because he's bald and pudgy and, mm. you know, but characters like Dascom and uh, I can't I keep forgetting the guy who is um, who is Finch's partner, who's the sort of the last cop remaining at the end. Uh, I keep I kept confusing him with Rose Allman's husband, Derek mm. V kills mm. at one point. I mean, it was very easy to kind of 
you know, just forget some of these people, even though they're all important. Well, there's, there's not a lot of facial hair. There's no, like, people won't, don't have scars. Like, yeah. it's, you know, there's, there's just not a lot of, unless they were, as you say, like, had no hair or, yeah. like, just no hair at all or maybe had, you know, a slightly corpulent frame. Like, you know, there was no, there's not a lot of distinguishing features between them also. Right, right. But by design, again, yeah. it's one of those kind of almost George Orwellian type of deals where it's like, we're all the same. This yeah. is what the future looks like. Yeah. Damn girl. Look at your slightly corpulent frame. <laughs> so let's go around and, and pick out different parts of the book that, um, kind of stuck with you. I think one thing I do want to bring up, this isn't my, but my, my, my part is it's the fucking Scottish Ike's accents in this. I mean, man, that was difficult. Just trying to decipher what the hell is this guy saying that I mean, was so much fun yeah because more i mean he really takes that into account like he tries to write out people's accents and the one character i came alice yeah i god i had the hardest time with the guy but um i read that out loud every did time you, he was, a line. did you try reading it out loud just the way it was written oh, you yeah, sound when, scottish like yeah when you say it out loud yeah, it works it makes perfect sense but if you're not accustomed to hearing it like if you don't have regular contact with a person uh, with a scottish accent it, it's like uh, reading somebody with like a Jamaican accent, like yeah. the slang and the way in which they shorthand things can be very difficult to read on paper versus hearing. So like when you hear it contextually, you're like, OK, that means cannot. But yeah. Like, but when you read C-A-N-N-A-E, that's not cannot. That's cannot. Yeah. You know, the scene, you know, for me as a younger man, having read that book for the first time, the scene that that absolutely crushes me and breaks my heart every time, you know, after Evie's been caught and her head's been shaved and she's been placed in the concentration camp and, you know, she refuses to confess and she reads the letter from Valerie uh, when they said, OK, well, and, and this is something the movie I think kind of F's up is. Um, when they're still trying to get that final confession out of her about, you know, the location and whereabouts of codename V, you know, the line in the book is, you know, they, they make that final offer and V disguise. Well, I'm sorry, I won't give it away, but the guardsman basically says to her, well, okay, you won't give me a confession. There's nothing left to threaten you with. You're free to go. And the book I, th- I think in the movie, it's, it's the line is, um, oh, Lord, I can't even remember. I can't remember what it is, but they totally, like, screw it up. But that scene when she walks out of her cell and she realizes that she's been in the shadow gallery the whole time mm-hmm. and that all that stuff she thought was happening to her was just V doing it. She wasn't in a concentration camp. And she is just, like, crushed and devastated. And I remember feeling that when I first read it. I mean that's that is the fucking climax of the book. Let's you know? let's talk about that scene a little more because I feel like you could have a wide variety of opinions on how that informs what you think of V that he did that to her. So well, I'd be curious to hear opinions on that. Well, the thing that keeps coming up constantly throughout the beginning of the book, you know, in the, in the first chapter, is that. V is a lunatic. V is insane. <laughs> right. The way he sees the world is not normal or even human. And, you know, and what Alan Moore's had to say about that character and, and that story is that he tried not to present V as either a hero or a villain. Right. However you choose to see him is, is just that. Um, he doesn't try to inform any of that at all. Um, he might be a, 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 a a revolutionary, or he might just be an insane terrorist. 
Yeah, that's one thing I really like about the book as opposed to the movie is he is not presented solely as a protagonist. He's definitely more violent in the book. He, I mean, well, okay. He's more violent in that he kills less dis- with less discrimination than mm-hmm. he does in the movie. It's not as, it's not as, what's the right word here? I don't want to say deliberate because I think he deliberately means to kill people, but it's, it's maybe more wanton in the book. It's like, I'm not here. Like I'm here to let you know that violence is ugly. And so I commit this violence against you. It's it's not like poetic like it is in the movie. They want you to like every kill means something in the film, but the kills in the book are much more along the lines of I'm look, this is what I do. Like this is Yeah, he comes across more as like what a lot of historical revolutionaries are. I mean, they're complicated figures. Mm-hmm. I think they only become less so, you know, as as time and history move on, but you look at someone like Fidel Castro or Che Guevara there are a lot of different opinions on these people, depending on who you ask. You know, they did some good, they did some bad. Uh, it's not like they're all Captain America or or whatever. Um. So yeah, I think I think the book does a more interesting, nuanced depiction of that. But I really cannot decide what I think about um, the fact that he was torturing Evie to try to push her to this you know, point of reckoning and, and realizing that she is, you know, kind of beyond death or stronger than her own death. It's he's, he's trying to do something good for her, but do those ends justify the means? Right. One of the things I kind of liked more in the movie than in the book was in the book, you get the sense after she, well, maybe I have this wrong. I know she leaves in both cases. Mm-hmm. In the book, she leaves, and she ends up meeting Gordon, who is a totally different character than he is in the movie. Uh, and then in the movie... She- well, okay, here's... Okay, so in the book, he leaves her. He abandons her. He leads her oh, up to right. the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he realizes you're not cut out for this. Yeah. But, you know, so maybe you don't belong with me. And I think, you know, she's not as implicit... And his scheme in the book as she is in the movie, because automatically she's attached to him in the movie and there's a manhunt for her. But in the book, you know, but you're talking about when you said he, he leaves her like he abandons her. That's before he does the torturing. That's before the torture. Like when she goes, when she meets her lover, Gordon. Yeah. In the book. Yeah. He leaves. He leaves her like he just totally. Yeah. Her I'm off. talking about, though, in the book, uh, he does the whole torture thing and she seems grateful not immediately but shortly thereafter like when they go up on the roof and there's the whole rain scene because she asks for it in the book she can she continuously asks for things from v that v gives her whereas in the movie she wants to get away from V. Well, she, but he doesn't ask she doesn't ask him to torture her no, well, well, no, she, she asks to be free she wants to be free of, of fear, and and, and here's and the, and the reason why I say that is because she's very much a child mm-hmm. in the yeah. book. She's a grown woman with a job, right. you know, living on her own in the movie. I mean, that's the difference between you know Natalie Portman playing her at like what in her mid twenties versus you know her being obviously a sixteen year old girl in the book. But the thing is, is how you look at what V's agenda is because in both, more so in the book, he is playing a long game. 
And it becomes very intense, especially towards the end where after the torture, he's walking her through the shadow gallery. He's saying, this is your legacy. This is everything I'm leaving for you. He, it's almost like he intended, if not necessarily Evie, he wanted someone to step into his place. Whereas with the movie, that's not the case at all. Like he's done. Like Evie isn't necessarily, I guess she is somewhat a much more stronger person at the end of the movie. But the thing in the book, he has got her doing gymnastics and she is training, you know, to be something, even though she doesn't realize he's stepping down and she, he's intending for her to take his place. Also in the book, you remember that she is starting to have feelings for V and that's when he leaves her and abandons her because he is not there to be anything except for a mentor. And in the, novel or in the movie which i've already told you guys i don't like there's some like really shitty hollywood love story that they're building between them that i think breaks evie's character well plus there's the whole ambiguity in the book that we don't know v's identity because the thing is there's that scene where she's contemplating in the book where she's contemplating taking off his mask and each time she goes through the scenario in her mind he's a different person like one point he's a black man another point he's a gay man you know, and you don't know. V might not be into her at all, but the thing is, they're very much making a statement in the film where he's like, I love you, Evie. You know, okay, that's a heterosexual guy. And I didn't really get the impression that, you know, it was in a father, you know, mentor, student type mm-hmm. love or a father daughter type love. It was almost kind of. It was romantic. It was romantic. Yeah. That was the intention. And I think that's what they felt like a, a you know, heterosexual American audience. They would find that more palpable. Than anything else, but you don't know what V's backstory is or who he was, you know. Thank goodness. Yeah, it doesn't matter what he is; it's it's what he represents. He's above all of that. So now that we've brought up love, are we good to move on? Or well, yeah. I mean, finish what you want to say about the. Well, I don't know if there is anything I want to say about it. It 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 is not something that just sits right with me. Like I don't think it's okay. But it also doesn't necessarily matter for the purposes of the story, especially in the book, because he is not really depicted as a protagonist, necessarily. But what I like about uh, his... One of the things I like is his depiction in the book is a little little further off. It's gray. Uh, Way more gray. Well, I mean, just as far as how close it gets to his sense of things it's not as not that it's a first person narration of course but in the movie but it does feel a little more from his angle at times i mean which, which is a little skewed yeah than than in the the book where uh you get a little more distance from him you know um the 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 torture for me uh, in the film feels almost like a training montage do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you, you root, you root for her to be subjugated throughout, right? You're like I can't wait for her to just give in to this, and then he can teach her what she needs to learn, because that's what you're, that's what you've been taught to know about these kinds of scenes and films. But in the book, I mean, you really kind of get a better sense of like, oh, mm. it's it's a little more distasteful. Does that make any sense? Like it's 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 more. Well, I mean, she's. <laughs> She is. She looks horrible. I mean, she right. starts off as this fresh-faced 
curly-haired, blonde kid, just sweet and open to the world, and you know she and gets a prostituting taste. herself. Well, yeah, <laughs> maybe I not mean, that open to the world. I mean, her character is very much Too a desperate character, but she got a taste of a little of life mm-hmm. and such. Yeah, um, and then she is just whittled down That's, to the core, and she yeah. probably was on the the edge of the verge of dying. Yeah. And I think that's why it crushes you so much because he did this to a kid. Yeah. And but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, this is what I had to go through to be what I am. And if you want to be like me, you're going to put up with the shit I put up with. So, I mean, I feel like if his intention was to, for her to be his successor, that was the only way she was going to find out. Sure. But it does. I think the book raises a better question of is this all right? It, you know, it, maybe it was necessary for her to be his successor, but is this an okay thing to do to a child when that's when, <laughs> whether oh, or not yeah. that question's on the table, right? Right, right, right? I think I think that's what I was getting at is that in the in the movie you're like just you give in and just become the and you know it, you 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 get a sense of all right this is the necessary thing that has to happen. Well, you know, at the at you know it, it's kind of funny because at the end of you know after the whole concentration camp thing, you know, in the movie she she packs up and leaves again. But in the book, she stays with him. She's like, you know what? You're right. You know, you, by ha- teaching me that I had nothing left to lose, you know, I'm the freest I've ever been because they can't take anything from me short of my life. And even if they take that, it doesn't matter. I v- think that she can empathize more with V in the novel than the, char- than the movie Evie character can. Going through what V went through was the only way for V to set her free in the book and to show her what he went through. Right, right. And so it's really training her to be the next V, whereas that's not the case in the movie. Yeah, because there's this weird little scene, you know, with Stephen Ray's character, who I think they. He's a lot different than the uh, Inspector Finch in the book because, you know, he's a good cop and, you know, he's being held down by the man. He's trying to get somewhere in this investigation. And already, I mean, his, his character is soured on the regime and, and it's antics. Whereas, you know, in the book, you know, Finch is just a guy doing his job. He, it doesn't matter, you know, what's going on in the government. I need to find and catch this terrorist. But in in the book, he has this whole scene where he he comes to a lot of his revelations through an LSD trip, but somehow like Stephen Ray's character in the movie, it's almost, fucking clairvoyant because I, I'm seeing things from the past and I feel like I can see the future and somehow it's all connected. It's like, what the fuck is that shit? Like, okay, well, are you any closer to solving anything? But there's a brief flash in that scene where he's seeing all this stuff and it's almost like a scene where him and fucking Nellie Portman are married in the future and they're living together. <laughs> there's that goes, one little shot where yeah. he's wearing the dress. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, everything's okay in the future, and it's just like, what the hell? You know, like, mm, it just, yeah, it just doesn't work. It's it's weird. But then I guess, you know, the whole big crescendo at the end of the movie is fucking everybody's V, because they all have the mask and the hat and the cape and shit. And Spartacus. In unison, yeah, I am Spartacus, mm-hmm. and everybody in unison, that's the only way they're able to throw down the regime and take back their government from themselves, and, you know, that's... It doesn't matter. Evie doesn't have to be V because everybody else right. is V. So since we're there, why don't, why don't you talk about the ending of the book versus the ending of the movie? Well, you know, the ending happens. I, I guess the ending of the book is a much more of a, a, a it, 
V basically succeeds in his plan, but uh, he winds up throwing the country into uh, anarchy. And uh, like I said, V in the book is playing a long game. And even by the very end of the book, I mean, you know, there's still, like you said, there's a power vacuum mm-hmm. that's going to be filled by some other fascist asshole. And- I, I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but there's this bumper sticker that I both love that I that I saw once that I both love and fucking loathe at the same time, <laughs> and it's that one that reads "Subvert the Dominant Paradigm." Mm-hmm. And it's so stupid because you know it's some hipster shit that thinks it's like super. You know, deep to think about. Oh, throw off what what's in front of you, man. Uh, you know, rise up from from what you know the hive mind thinks. And like when you subvert a dominant paradigm, you just replace it with whatever was under it and the most dominant underneath that. Yeah. So it's it's foolish to think that it, there's some instance wherein completely removing something does the universe any sort of real good real good in the short term. But you're right. He's playing the long con here. It's you know sure there's going to be absolute chaos. Um, I mean, look at the the French Revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Like something had to be done about the the gross misuse of resources and and power in France at the time. What they replaced it with was probably worse. Yeah, in the short term, well, it was, it was a necessary step, and it was also anarchy that brought this um, fascist regime to power in the first place. Right. Yeah, so there's no guarantee that it won't bring another one. Right. He's doing his part that he can do. In order to give it a chance, because any chance at something better is better than what they currently have. And it's a very ambiguous ending, you know, where he's like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I had to get us to this point. That was my job. And we're either going to thrive and flourish or we're just going to fucking wallow in our own crap. But, of course, the movie being what it is, it's a much happier ending. Yeah. Well, and, you know, here's, here's, here's the piece, though. That also necessitates his need for Evie. Because when I'm gone, shit is not going to be good, and I need a watchman, essentially. Not just, you know, where she's able to walk away at, at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. Um, but you mentioned a moment ago, you asked the question, um, Blake, what was, your, what was your favorite thing from the film or book or, you know, what, what stuck with you? So there's the, the quote that he gives her in both the book and the film, and it's, it's done a little bit differently. So um, reflect my notes here so it's the it's the v v v v v v thing right which made me think about you obviously because it's a whole <laughs> bunch of v's um but uh, essentially uh the 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 quote is let me see exactly how he phrases it because it's a little bit different than the actual quote itself vivere viniversum vivis vici which essentially means um you know, know by the power of truth i immortal have conquered all creation Right. right, and he credits it to Faust. Mm-hmm. Right, oh, from Faust. Right. Uh, in the graphic novel, I think he just credits credits it to oh, a German guy, Doctor John Faust. Um, the best part about that, and you'd really not ever know this unless you were any sort of interested in in strange um, occult writings um, or had a you know a, a pretty decent. Um, PhD in actual literature is that that quote actually does not come from Faust. It comes from uh, Aleister Crowley. Yeah, which is something that pops up in the book a lot is the whole um, do as thou wilt. Mm-hmm. That will be the whole of the law, which mm-hmm. is the quote from probably Crowley's, yep. most known for. And that's essentially what fucking anarchy is mm-hmm. to a point. But the thing is, V states in the book that, you know, no, it's going to be fucking chaos right now. But the thing is, the thing about anarchy is that it doesn't mean, you know, no government. You know, it just 
basically means that the people get to govern themselves right. at some point. Yeah, and I think V knows, like everybody knows, that on a long enough timeline, those kinds of situations gravitate towards order, which is what the universe is, which is why that quote specifically mentions conquering the universe, mm-hmm. is that the universe gravitates towards an order. You can only have chaos for so long or the system destroys itself. The yeah. system will balance out, and that doesn't mean every element of it will survive to the end, right, right. but it does gravitate towards balance, which right. is essentially what he's trying to kickstart. He's he's kicking off a big bang, and not just an explosion under the House of Parliaments. Another scene that I'd like to mention before we move on to questions. Susan. B. Anthony. The leader, mm. right? Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, Supreme. I guess in the book, in the movie, Supreme Chancellor Sutter. I think he's just leader in this. Supreme leader. Whatever the fuck he Leader is. Susan. Snoke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he has a few scenes in which he's talking about love mm-hmm. that I didn't think fit with the narrative of the book. He is obsessed with order and fate. But then he, like, whispers, I love you, to one of his subordinates. He's talking it's, on the machine. Yeah, to he's the computer. To the machine. Yeah. yeah. So it's the whole time he's loving the machine, is that what was going on? Yeah. Like, he, the machine represents order and, and his will. And that's the thing I kind of liked. You know, they don't really talk much about in the movie. But in, in the book, you have those, the, was it the five organizations you have? The eye, the ear, the, the finger, the nose. the nose. And I guess what? The eye is their video surveillance. The ear is their audio surveillance. The finger are basically the policemen in the street who, finger men who, you know, are plainclothes detectives. You have uh, what? The, the nose, which the is nose their is detective Finch. agency. Yeah. That's Finch's branch. And then I forgot what the fifth one. Voice. The voice, mm-hmm. which is their propaganda. broadcasting propaganda, yeah. that that uh, organization. Um you know, I thought I thought that was fantastic in the book because I mean, it's such a simple thing like you know the human senses and you know using that imagery. These are kooky fascists. Yeah, yeah. they have government organizations that they refer to as the the ears and the nose. And I mean, you know, yeah, it's, it's one body of government, right. you know, with all its individual parts and how they empower this leviathan and how it's able to keep people under its thumb. I did like uh, the way Susan, the leader in the book, was depicted more than Sutter in the movie. Sutter was totally one-dimensional. He's just a, you know, he's a screaming... Wizard of Oz. He's a talking head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, you know, it's, it's fucking stunt casting because it's John Hurt who, you know, once again, got rest your soul, sir. Rest in peace. Uh, you he know, also was in 1984. Yes, that is you know that's that is the stunt casting. Ironically, he plays Winston Smythe in mm-hmm. the uh, in the movie adaptation of 1984, who is a individual being subjugated by this fascist totalitarian government. But yet in this movie, he is playing the opposite. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, a little stunt casting for you. Um, I mean, as far as the thing with you know leader Susan and whatnot, I mean. I guess the thing I didn't quite understand was as we got further towards the end of the book was his whole mental breakdown and what was the cause of that or how V could have even predicted that to use against him for what V was trying to accomplish. But then I realized he fucking dosed him with LSD. Wait, did he really dose him with LSD? It's hinted at. I totally missed that because yeah. there's this whole part, and I'm looking at it right now, where he's like sitting in his chair, like looking up, disheveled, mm-hmm. talking about his love. And 
being destroyed and fate. And it, when I was reading through it, I was like, I don't understand how he got this crazy all of a sudden. Uncharacteristic, right? It's yeah. like instantly uncharacteristic. Yeah. Okay. And I th- yeah. And, and that's the thing. Like, it was just kind of like, I, I found that a little unbelievable. Like, how does he know this guy's, you know, inner, his innermost thoughts and desires and such? And how is he able to play that against them? And, you know, there's a big reveal in the book that, oh, well, shit, I have access to their computer system. So everything they know, I know. And I tell you what, if anyone's reading this book who hasn't done acid, they're going to think that acid does a whole bunch of stuff that it definitely does not do. <laughs> like, like I can see other people's thoughts if I do acid. Yeah, that will not happen. The only thing that will happen is you're going to grind your teeth a bunch, and your your head's going to sweat, and you're going to shake a little bit, and you're going to think you see stuff. Like if you're walking up to a mailbox, you can be like, "Look, there's a wooden giraffe." And then your brain, your brain is going to say, "No, that's a mailbox. That's it. Like you're not going to be able to see other people's thoughts. Yeah, you the, might see the walls breathe, maybe. <laughs> that's about it." Fucking fear and loathing in Las Vegas totally put me off of hallucinogenics altogether. I will not fuck with that shit. Without getting into a long discussion, I'll say that LSD is is skippable for sure. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'd agree with that. <laughs> um, not that I've done it. I mean, for what times. I've read. It sounds like it would or would not do that. Yeah, because yeah, I, I guess I should say, like, V is way on top of his game in the book. Very much so. He is a superhero in the book. I do not believe he is a real superhero in the movie. Like, his abilities in the book, he has heightened everything, right? And he's very intelligent, which he's intelligent in the movie. But, I mean, he is, like, super strong and like understands the inner workings of all uh, compounds, so he can create LSD. He can create like weird explosives, explosives. out of cheap materials. Exactly, and that really you just think that he's like a super smart terrorist in the movie. At least that's how I saw it. Yeah, because there's the whole thing in the movie where like he's able to ship out all of these masks and capes and hats for every single citizen in the uh, English government in the movie, and it's just like you have to be on some Bruce Wayne level <laughs> to fucking have that kind of manufacturing and distribution capability where it's a little more feasible what V's working with in, in the book but like yeah he is almost fucking Batman in that movie you know it's, it was a little a little silly but shit it's, it was a comic book movie so I think they were just trying to play with the comic tropes Hey-o! that they're familiar with or the audience is familiar with so before we go into last thoughts and giving this a grade, I texted Amos some things to read out loud, because as I promised earlier, <laughs> if there's ever a moment in which I can get Amos to speak in an accent, I will, in fact, do that. You just want me to read some stuff? Well, I mean, it was from, what's his, the alley? I yeah. feel like what's his last you, you've got to do a dialogue. Like, you read something and Amos responds. Well, you're reading like, this is like higher than. Yeah, like, this has to be, like, fucking, okay. like, theater. All right. And I think this, Entertain gets, us. this gets all sexy, so. Got it. <laughs> all right. I think it does. Hello, missus. I've got your message. Sorry I'm late now, that. In future, you'll be punctual. I don't like waiting. Do you know who I am? Hey, you're the missus that done a bloke running the A. And you're running Creedy's civilian auxiliary force. You know, he's planning a coup. He wants to be leader. 
Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, is this is this Mama's family <laughs> talking to <laughs> talking to fucking the best I can on tonight's episode right, of you know Comic Trump Theater? <laughs> I will. I know nothing about any of that. Oh, don't play dumb. This is a straightforward business decision. Creedy wants to be leader. I want Conrad to be leader. How much is he paying you? Well, I'm getting five hundred at present. Really, I'd have thought four hundred maximum. I'm prepared to offer six plus an increase upon your thug's current wages. This is like community theater reading. You are fucking good, man. You you have missed your calling in life if you are not reading radio drama. Like, you really should have been radio drama. If you can find me a job reading radio drama, I'll do it. Dude, the Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped hires people to fucking read audiobooks for the blind. Or you could do it for free. I'm sure a like random house. Or then I'd have to keep my current job. <laughs> fucking, uh, uh, what's, what's that fucking, uh, the audio, the fucking, uh, audio book app? What is that shit? I forgot. I had it at one time. It's owned by, uh, Amazon? Audible. Yeah. With Audible. Amazon. Audible. Yes, yes. You need a job with Audible or something. I take it. You could probably be able to get to meet Samuel L. Jackson that way. Sweet. <laughs> I like when Allie or whatever says look and it's just L U K E. Look. Look. I'm not aggravating the police. Creedy's running the finger. Finger. Yeah, and it's uh, italicized. The finger. Look, I'm not aggravating the police. Creedy's <laughs> running the finger. <laughs> what? Why, why is yours constipated? <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> uh, My favorite of his... The, the dialect spellings. The, it took me a while to realize what it was was G-O apostrophe D-I-E, which he said all the time in his first couple scenes. And it was him saying Gordy, talking to Gordon. Gordy! And I was like, what does Godai mean? Gordy! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, Gordy. I think there'd be more of an R. How you doing, Gordy? Like that. But there are different Scottish dialects, and I'm not good enough to... I don't know if I could do a Glasgow versus an Edinburgh accent. So I've got a few questions I want to ask you before we say sayonara, or what do Scottish people say when they say goodbye? Sayonara! <laughs> sayonara! What? What is yours like dying? <laughs> oh my god! It's really uncomfortable being a Scotsman, let me tell you! He's got new legs! What what is happening? What happens when you go to do that accent? <laughs> Look, I pucker my butt. Like, I pucker... Yeah. It sounds like you're holding in a hell of a... It sounds like... It reminds me of in Austin Powers 2 when Fat Bastard gets kicked in the nuts. I'm pretty, sure. I'm pretty sure that uh, Fat Bastard is the only Scotsman I've ever heard talk. Well, that's okay, I so always I, go there. Let's, let's be more specific. I think Michael Myers' Scottish accent whoa, might whoa, be... Not the, Michael. Mike yeah. Myers. I'm, <laughs> I'm so sorry. He didn't kill counselors at a camp, okay? <laughs> no, that's that Jason Voorhees. Oh, I'm sorry. He didn't. He didn't terrorize Halloween for several years. Yes, thank you, thank you. I, uh, you wouldn't know it from listening to me, but I'm actually a, a <laughs> pretty, pretty much up on my horror movie shit. House! But, but here's the thing: his his Scottish accent in um, "So I Married an Axe Murder" yes. would be similar to what Blake oh, yeah. is attempting to do right now. Yes, Nogan. <laughs> It's like an orange on a toothpick. Which yeah. apparently is Mike Myers impersonating his father. father. Yeah. Because he's uh, he is of Canadian descent. Or as Mike is. Yeah. But yeah, his father's Scottish. 
We, we, I'm not kidding. That kid's got a head like Sputnik. <laughs> spherical but quite pointy in parts. <laughs> if you like my body and you think I'm sexy, come on, sugar, let me know. So you've actually seen that movie. I love it. Wow. Who hasn't seen that movie? I've never Plus, watched so it. So I'm Max Murders. We got a paper down. I got a paper down. I guess I'll have to go. His back whole and rant watch that. about um, why he hates Colonel Sanders yeah. is amazing. Look at that colonel with his wee beady eyes. So yes to so <laughs> I married an axe murderer, but no to the love guru, right? Oh, the yeah, love correct. guru is the worst movie I've ever seen. Okay, there's no way you clearly haven't seen um, Adam Sandler's made for Netflix movies. <laughs> oh, I didn't see those. But okay, of the ones I have seen. Love Guru is plus it almost holy shit it's bad I, there's, I, it's mind blowing and I, I though I haven't seen it there's no way it's worse than Pixels or Manos the Hands of Fate or <laughs> but, but I digress we digress yeah. sorry all right we here, digress here are my questions so over the top. about V for Vendetta that have nothing really to do with the book at all if V were American. Who would he model himself after? The Punisher. Not obviously not Guy Foe. Fox. Fox. I know. I know. I was making a joke about the spelling. Never mind. If V were American, who would he model himself after? Benedict Arnold. <laughs> Jesus. No, I don't know about that. Yeah, probably not. Um, I don't know that we John have Brown. A, well, and so okay, so if his inspiration as a Brit is to say, okay, this guy that aimed to bring, again, like, like we mentioned at the beginning of the show, um, not necessarily the ideals that Guy Fox held, but more of the actions he took in which to, to bring those in power down. If we were going to look at something like that, I mean, maybe he'd... I don't know that we have a direct corollary. The our, our system that, up until recently was pretty damn terrorists. good. <laughs> the closest I could think of would be something like a Malcolm X. Yeah, but see, I, I think don't know. He's going to so much trying to take down the American government as he just was the, you know, uh, the uh, <laughs> not racist, but I want to. Well, how the, the fuck he, do you fight no, racist? Call it racist. Fight well, well, no. Here's uh, the thing: he was he was directly fighting um, the the man. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean that's the best way to put the it. Motherfuckers. But, but he was fighting. Fuck he was fighting the the anti black. Uh, not necessarily legislation, but but corrupt system that we had social in Paris, the, the social racism we had in, in, and so that's why I might have said earlier, you know, in my mind as I'm thinking like maybe the Black Panthers. But I think what a lot of people, and not to become too political here, but what a lot of people miss is is that the violence. I'm using air quotes for those that can't see me of Malcolm X and his followers and um, and the Black Panthers. A lot of that is really just perpetrated by the FBI and the government at the time. I mean, they were mostly about education mm-hmm. and about outreach. Um, you know, a, a hand a hand up is always better than a handout, right? Thank you for saying that because that is something that pisses me off so often when people try to say the fucking Black Panthers were terrorists. Were the black equivalent of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. I was like, you know, yes, crazy. there yeah. were a few instances of fucking bombings. Yeah. but I They mean, killed a couple black people. They didn't kill any white people. <laughs> Well, and, and, and again, not to get too off topic here, but, you know, we're I, way off topic. Now. Let me, no, let me, sorry, let, sorry, let me yes. see if I can bring it. Let me see if I can I can I can center us some on this. Bernie Is Sanders. That, <laughs> he would just wear a Bernie he Sanders. Mask. Here's my like question. <laughs> my thing is just because somebody puts fucking V's mask on, how is anyone supposed to automatically recognize that that was Guy Fawkes? Like he looks like any fucking bright like, yeah, from, from that century with a fucking Van Dyke. Facial hair and rosy cheeks and arched eyebrows. Who was the cartoon character who was always beside the dog that went? 
Dick Dastardly? Yes, it looks like a Dick Dastardly mask. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I mean, he looks he looks like a vaudeville villain. Not to use more V's. Yeah, oh. but V for Vandellas, vaudeville and Bob Buddha. Victor Von Victor Von Vaudeville. Can we just um, imagine the movie if if it was a bunch of people with Bernie Sanders masks on? That's amazing. I'm going to blow up the Jefferson Memorial. I, yeah, I feel like Benedict Arnold would be he's kind the, of the probably the, he's the direct corollary because yeah. I mean Benedict Arnold didn't betray America because he just he was done with it and he didn't see another way out. I mean, he he had a, a moral decision to make. And so it's easy for us hundreds of years in the future to trivialize a person's decision, but in that moment he felt that he had to make he had to do something because he felt like, you know, the the path that he had been on had lost its way. He was wrong because, you know, the other side won and we've painted things to, to fit that model, but that doesn't necessarily mean that Excuse me. I think you're talking that, about Benedict Arnold. But oh, I think okay. I think the main difference between Benedict Arnold and maybe why it doesn't really work is that he never had an unsuccessful but almost uh almost plan successful. right to to fully bring down uh you know the American government. I think if anything it would be somebody from the Civil War maybe. It maybe you dress up as John Booth. booth. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying you dress up as Booth. You put yeah. on a John Wilkes Booth mask and you talk about destroying the the figurehead of the American nation. Just, he, and he know, was an actor, the, so there's, there's whitewash the part about why he wanted to. <laughs> right, the, but I mean, the real answer is Richard Nixon. Well, that's who you model okay. yourself after. Well, this is a, yeah, that's a point break. Distinguish. Point break. Yeah. <laughs> so, point, so point so, break is is V for Vendetta for America. I, mean, I was right there with you. I was going right there. I think we've brought it full circle now. Go back. I think that should be our homework. Go back and watch not the shitty remake. Go back and watch. Don't the watch the shitty remake. <laughs> Go back uh, and the, oh, next time on the comic trope, we watch both versions of Point Break and determine which and one actually had it right. Up with the first Fast and Furious, because that I've always said that is Point Break with cars, <laughs> car break. So another question. <clears throat> I just wanted to do a Nixon voice, but we'll move on. You want Nixon as me? But just because I want, I want to do it like this. Yeah. I remember, on. remember. Come on, Spiro, we're gonna blow something up. <laughs> Anyway, w, w for Vendetta. You get it? Because of, of Watergate. Thank you. I don't know why I did it in that voice. I don't know what that Watergate. Because of Watergate. What good. U.S. city would this take place in if it were an American adaptation? It wouldn't be D.C.? Yeah, I feel like it has yeah, to be D.C. Yeah, because of its yeah, proximity DC. to all of our national landmarks. Yeah. And also, I feel like I was thinking about while watching the movie and, you know, our current administration and how freaked out a lot of people are. Um, I feel like a totalitarian government would be way harder to administer in a country this size. And especially of the, the flavor of 20th century fascism. You know, it flourished or it had its day in Germany, Italy. Um, and a couple of other places, but uh, very small. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I just have a hard time imagining an effective totalitarian government in a country the size of this one. I think that your pro- that your point could be further proven by the fall of the Roman Empire and the Napoleon Empire, because as yeah. they expanded, the the grip. On the people were lost. So I, I think you make a, a valid point. Well, and 
the strongest Rome ever was when, whenever, whenever it was still a republic, whenever it had representatives from all the far reaches of its empire, because it didn't even necessarily continue to grow by the time it had fallen. If anything, it had started to cede power as to to some of the city states, but you know, long before the you know the Gauls were able to finally it was it was the Gauls, it was the uh, the Visigoths that finally sacked Rome and brought it down. My nigga Mary, I swear <laughs> to God, man, you're so fucking intelligent. I swear, I love you. <laughs> Thanks, I love you too, Encyclopedia. But <laughs> you guys go neck kiss later. Um, <laughs> I'm just impressed. I'm, I'm sitting between, and you know these. Fucking powerhouse, man! These dudes <laughs> and you, which are recording ability. Yeah, thanks, <laughs> thanks. In this, in this Justice League, we all have a power. Mine is that I own the equipment. <laughs> That's a good power to have. It, it is. You give us a voice. Final thoughts, guys. Um, here's my final thoughts. First of all, I want to thank all of you guys for talking about this book and Sequoia for suggesting that we read this. I hope that we can do this every month. What, so- I, what I will say in the month that you've been gone and not been on the show, though, is that there is an obvious lack of comic bookery on this podcast. So, yes, I mean, I feel like you've definitely earned that moniker. <laughs> also, all of our listeners disappeared. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, the last time you were... No, I'm not no, I have no idea who listened to this. About five less people Your listening. mom stopped listening? Amos's Your mom. <laughs> the best part is, is that the comic book tropes, your mom joke in reference to Amos is actually very topical and not at all in the traditional sense. <laughs> My final thoughts on this book was that it has aged a little mm. and the storytelling for V is done from so many different characters that at times, especially in the third act, it was difficult to follow. But as a whole, I think it is a classic, easily top 20 of all graphic novels for me. And I don't know if it's because it feels much more relevant today than maybe it would have to me in the 90s. But it's a damn good book and a necessary read for any comic book or just dystopian future uh, lover. I think a lot of the elements that went into the initial creation of this book, we're starting to see those uh, real world elements. Uh, We're starting to see that again in the UK as well as here in the U S and that's, that's why I recommended it. Um, You know, like I said, regardless of how the next four to eight years go for us, you know, I I feel like it is very essential reading. I I was going to recommend either this or Frank Miller's, uh, Give me liberty, which is something down the road I wouldn't mind us reading. But I would also add, um, if you do enjoy this book or you do enjoy, you know, dystopian fiction in general, I also highly recommend reading Lazarus by Greg Rucka. Excellent book. Uh, I feel like that kind of goes along with this. Uh, if you enjoy V, uh, do yourself a favor, read Lazarus as well. Highly recommend it. How do you feel about this, Amos? Uh, about V for Vendetta? It's great. Um, uh, sublime yeah you know the uh it is hard to tell all these people apart and i kind of wish there was a border around the speech bubbles but uh <laughs> other than those sorts of things i think it's a it's a great story you know it is it is serialized and and maybe that um breaks up the the movement of the narrative a little in some ways but I think it's fantastic. I love reading it. So C C plus. <laughs> and, I'm kidding. 
And Dave, any last thoughts? Since you're always so brief, I figured I'd let you be last. <laughs> I always go well. So I always go last when I, to give the opinion of the book for whatever reason. It's just the way that it goes. I go last, and everybody's basically said everything there is to say about it. And so I'm usually left with like holding the bag of, yeah, I liked it. It was pretty good. All right, uh, well, <laughs> you guys. I again appreciate all of you being here, and from our comic book show. To your comic book show, we say, read a fucking comic. Read a fucking comic. But while we're all here, Dave, can you tell me your opinion about the state of politics today? (laughs) 